Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last week, we began our Foreknowledge and Free Will series with Dr. Dale Tuggy, who gave us an overview of the various positions. He also commended open theism as a view that triumphs where others suffer from logical contradictions and problems. Now today, in part two, Tuggy will further explore and defend open theism against a number of common critiques, including, if God doesn't know the future, how can there be prophecy? Specifically, how could Jesus predict that Peter would deny him? Why do evangelicals generally look down upon open theism? Isn't open theism just process theology dressed up with some Bible references? And last of all, doesn't open theism posit a small God with limited knowledge? Additionally, we'll delve into the subject of prayer and how open theism deals with prayer, especially in light of Hezekiah's prayer for healing. Now, I realize some of you listening are ardent open theists, and some of you are not. Keep in mind that next week, we are going to hear from another perspective, from Dr. Leighton Flowers on the Arminian view, and then subsequent to that, Dr. Sean Cole is going to lay out the case for Calvinist compatibilism. My goal here is to expose you to multiple views so you can see all of the options laid out side by side. Now, I realize that we all have a bias, and I think my bias for open theism probably already came through last week. If not, it'll come through this week. But even recognizing that bias, I want to be honest enough to say, hey, I could be wrong here on this doctrinal position, and I want to see what other people, other competent well-studied, godly people have to say about the same subject. So that's what we're up to here. It's our Foreknowledge and Free Will series, and here now is episode 304, Foreknowledge and Free Will Part 2, Dale Tuggy Defending Open Theism. Dr. Dale Tuggy, welcome back to Restitutio. I'm looking forward to talking more about God and knowledge and foreknowledge and free will. Um, Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Sean. So last time we talked about a different, a number of different ways of thinking about our experience of time and how it all works in the grand scheme of things. Today, I thought we could talk about open theism in particular and also some of the objections that people raise regarding that view. It's funny, in my personal interactions with people, uh, I've, I've seen that a lot of people just regard Calvinism with disdain, and they think, oh, man, that view makes God into the author of evil and a moral monster. And uh, people also regard open theism, likewise, with disdain, saying, oh, that makes God ignorant of the future. Meanwhile, this like middle position called Arminianism that affirms exhaustive foreknowledge and free will is sort of like the default for a lot of people could you just r- remind us ever so quickly, uh, I know we talked about this last time, why aren't you just an Arminian and taking that middle position? I'm not an Arminian because I think Arminians believe that divine foreknowledge and human freedom actually are logically compatible. And I think in a lot of cases, they'll just accept that as a mystery and really not have anything much more to say about it than that. And I don't think it's reasonable to accept it as a mystery. I mean, a mystery here means an apparent contradiction. When you run into an apparent contradiction, 
mean, that's how you find contradictions and you're trying to get true beliefs and avoid false beliefs. But if two claims appear to be such that they couldn't both be true, you need to give one of them up. And here it looks like you need to give up that God with certainty foreknows every future free action that's going to happen. And for you, that's just an unacceptable proposition. Yeah, and it doesn't particularly have anything to do with me. It's just that it looks like there wouldn't be freedom or moral responsibility in a world where God single-handedly settles everything that's ever going to happen, and we are just riding that train and can't get off it. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't think that creatures in such an unfortunate scenario as that are responsible for what they do or even what kind of people they are. Mm -hmm. So... People have uh, strong emotional responses about this. I mean, the appeal of Calvinism is it tells you how to think about everything in one big blob, right? Yeah. This is how you think think about race. I think they would prefer the term system, but yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a a system. It's the Protestant system that people know about and uh, tells them how to think about grace and providence and salvation and choice uh, you know, basically it throws out free will. It's a fatalistic scheme. That's that's fundamentally what it is. And yeah, people have a strong emotional reaction against it. That doesn't mean it's false. We need to think about it soberly and in, in a cold, careful, rational frame of mind. With open theism, I think people just fly off the handle. Oh, God's just a victim of circumstance. Like he's just <laughs> waiting to see what happens. And gosh, gosh, golly, I didn't see that coming. You know, uh-huh. that's yeah. not the view at all. The view is that God is provident. God is in control of history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing happens that he hasn't foreseen as a possibility and as a probability. Hmm. The second it becomes inevitable, he knows with certainty that it will happen. It's just that he doesn't do all of his management right up front. Right. He's in time managing as events unfold. Yeah. The philosopher, theologian Greg Boyd talks about the myth of the blueprint, and the blueprint is God's eternal plan that's absolutely all-inclusive, includes every event that's ever going to happen any time or place. And we open theists think that's a myth. There is no such blueprint. Now, God has a plan, but it leaves a lot of things open. And sometimes there's a B plan, a C plan, a D plan, etc. He's able to react and shift according to how we respond to his grace whether we uh, decide to cooperate with him or whether we rebel. So it's just that managing the history of the world is just more complicated than Calvinists think it is. I came across what, what I consider to be like a unusually forceful objection in, in a kind of a strange place. This is a, a book called Total Truth by Nancy Piercy. Have you ever heard of her before? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, I think she's pretty good on a lot of stuff. Um mm-hmm. She was a disciple of Francis Schaeffer, and then she really made her splash co-authoring with, she co-authored with Chuck Colson, How Now Should We, and she was like one of Mm -hmm. the first ones bringing out the whole idea of worldview, and that like that's Mm -hmm. a way of thinking about things that's really helpful as opposed to, you know, looking at everything independently. But anyhow, in her book, uh, Total Truth, I remember I came across her response to open theism, and it was just, like, excessively harsh. <laughs> I'm like, what, what do the open yeah. theists ever do to you? 
Yeah, she writes, uh, she writes on page 236, Process theology teaches that God and the world are both in a process of constant change and evolution, that God is a divine spirit evolving in and with the world, the soul of the world evolving, cosmic, the evolving of cosmic life of which our lives are a part. This is, strictly, this is not strictly speaking pantheism, but rather panentheism, where the physical world is a concrete emanation of God's own essence. Uh, and then she goes on to talk about how, uh, surprisingly, quote, surprisingly, some of these same themes have spilled over into evangelical circles as well in what is known as open theism promoted by Clark Pinnock and others. The term itself echoes the pragmatist language when they describe an evolving universe as an open universe, a world of novelty, innovation, emergence, and unpredictable possibilities which cannot be known in advance even by God. Uh, so basically, she she associates open theism with an evolutionary view of of us and God. How would you respond to this and this whole idea that open theism is just sort of importing some pagan philosophy from Whitehead and others and this whole connection with process theology? Yeah, process theology is basically a failed theological movement of the 20th century. Um, it was inspired by the writings of Alfred North Whitehead, who was a really bizarre kind of speculative philosopher early to mid 20th century. Very brilliant uh, philosophers like Charles Hartshorn, who was at the University of Texas, explored these ideas. And uh, John Cobb is another perhaps the most famous um, process theist. Process theism is arguably not traditional theism, but as she says, panentheism. Uh, the world turns out to be like God's body, and God is like the soul of the world. And the big difference between this and a traditional view of God that Jews and Christians hold is that God is so closely related to the world that he depends on it. They usually uh, hold views like God can't control how things are going to turn out, and uh, he is just forced to wait and see, and uh, he just can't interfere with creaturely freedom, and uh, he's he, again, is changing and evolving along with the world. He's kind of doing the best he can, but maybe he can't really prevent all the evil, but anyway, he's trying. It's an alternative to various kinds of traditional theism. And Piercy, I think, is approaching open theism in sort of a paranoid conservative way. Like, there's this basically non-Christian uh, stream of thinking which is corrupting evangelicalism's precious purity. Really, that's not how it worked at all. And mainstream evangelicalism, in my view, horribly blew it about open theism in the 1990s. And the way it went down is um, certain philosophers and theologians, people like Clark Pinnock, William Hasker, David Basinger, John Sanders, they started to reopen this issue about the compatibility of foreknowledge and human freedom. A lot of them also knew about process theism and really strongly rejected the non-traditional elements of it. So they wanted to retain, they're like, no, that's not going to work. It's not biblical. It's not in keeping with good theology. So, I mean, they really weren't influenced by process theism in many cases. They they thought it wasn't good theism 
for various reasons, but largely for biblical reasons. And also because, as I explained in last week's episode, the other alternatives just seem to be bad philosophically. And they seem, a lot of them go against just God-given common sense. So these evangelicals wanted to reopen this question about divine foreknowledge and human freedom. And uh, largely with biblical uh, Old Testament and New Testament motivations, they said, well, hey, shouldn't we be careful about how we understand the contents of God's foreknowledge? God is omniscient, most of them would say, not all of them. But shouldn't there be still some indeterminateness in how the future comes out? Now, Piercy might have the idea, like some critics of open theism, that knowledge of the future is an all-or-nothing proposition. Either God knows every last fact about every reaction that's ever going to happen in the future, or he knows none, like it's a total blank. Just God is just blindly blundering into the future, not knowing anything that's about to happen. Sometimes theologians who aren't very precise in their metaphysics might talk about the future just being a realm of possibility and a realm of openness and things like that, but there's nothing about the open theist position that requires all of the future to be open and unsettled. So, for instance, suppose that God has determined that Jesus is going to come back on uh, January 1st, 2025 at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, If God has determined that, it's going to happen. It can be foreknown, and in fact, it can't be avoided. And if it's already, not just that he's considering this, not just that he's planning on it and that he might change it, but if he really has a, a settled resolution that he is definitely going to bring that about, boom, there's a truth about the future. There's something that can be foreknown with certainty, and it's going to limit uh, how things can turn out otherwise. Uh, but God's always limiting how things turn out. He can, he can affect the possibilities however he wants. And freedom isn't an all-or-nothing thing either. God can take freedom and give it away. He can increase and decrease it for his own purposes. It's not like he's obligated to let us just run on totally uninfluenced by him. I don't think that's true. So a famous example is God's hardening Pharaoh's heart in the narrative in Exodus. I mean, on the face of it, it looks like God, as a punishment against Egypt, God is taking away the Pharaoh's ability to freely cooperate with God. Right. That's what that looks like. And if you're if you're a God giving, generally speaking, giving people free will— That doesn't mean you're under any obligation to always maximize people's choices or, uh, you know, if God, uh, if it's God's will, he could let me go crazy tomorrow and I would lack free will. Right. And he can do that. And that would be his judgment. It wouldn't be capricious and, you know, like a puppet master or something. Pharaoh himself was a genocidal savage who was trying to use ethnic cleansing on the Israelites. So it's not like he was some innocent guy that God just took away Mm -hmm. his free will suddenly. You know, I I Mm -hmm. think the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was God's judgment itself on Pharaoh. Right, right. Yeah, so he can't can't escape. He he actually can't avoid the judgment, even though the prophets sat there and taunted him and said, you better go along with this. God's like, actually, no, you can't go along with it. Right. Uh, Let me go back to the story about how evangelicals blew it, okay? Yeah, yeah, you never finished that. Yeah, so... These 
completely evangelical authors, philosophers, and theologians said, hey, what about this view about divine providence and foreknowledge and freedom? Isn't this a better view? Doesn't it make better sense given what we know about human freedom? Doesn't it actually better fit scripture than things like Molinism or belief that God is in timeless eternity or belief that we can change the past and things like that? A lot of evangelicals knew that, hey, this is a matter of theorizing. The Bible doesn't by itself obviously demand one theory of divine providence. It's possible to reasonably disagree about this. They knew that, but they went along with the heresy hunters who said, no, this is terrible. You're saying God's ignorant. This is damnable heresy. And they built it into the uh, the official statement of faith of the Evangelical Theological Society that you could not be an open theist and be a member of the ETS. Oh, wow. And they just treated these guys, you know, very badly. Uh, the theologian John Sanders, who's an extremely humble and um, intellectually honest person, and a very good professor and writer, he lost his job at a Christian college because the hotheads oh, wow. pushed him out. And what happened was um, the evangelicals who knew better just sat by and let this happen. The uh, Arminian theologian Roger Olson has written in blog posts about this on his blog, and he's not an open theist. He's an Arminian who thinks that foreknowledge and freedom are compatible, but he said, look, guys, this is wrong. This, this should not have happened. There's a kind of uh, partisan hate that comes out here that's really kind of distressing. People get very attached to their theories to their speculations about divine providence. And so I've seen my own work treated very contemptuously by certain people, but not just me. I mean, more so these other people like uh, Greg Boyd, William Hasker. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a shame. I, I listened to John Sanders debating. I think he was debating the, the question of, do you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved with, with somebody else? And, he he did a great job, you know. I mean, it was it was really fascinating. Um, he looked at the Old Testament saints, and he looked at you know the whole idea of you know if you have if you have access to the gospel or you don't, and that sort of thing. And um, the open theism really did play into that in the sense that well, if God's already determined everyone who's going to be saved, then there's nothing to really even talk about here. But yeah, yeah. he seemed like a really uh, a really humble guy. Yeah, that's the word that came to mind for me too. The problem of evil is a big motivating factor for these guys as well. It seems harder to defend that a perfect God could allow evil when God is single-handedly in charge of everything that ever goes down. And there are just certain things that happen where you just say to yourself, you know, I don't think that was part of God's eternal plan. John Sanders had a brother who tragically died in a car accident. And he just found that he couldn't believe what God, uh, that God eternally determined that this should happen. Uh, he believes that God allowed it to happen, which is God's right to do. When I was thinking about this in the 1990s, uh, as a graduate student in Brown, there was a terrible police tragedy that happened. There was a young uh, African-American cop who was kind of new on the force, and uh, he was at a nightclub, and a fight broke out outside the club, and he ran out into the street to see if he could help. And he had that little ankle gun that the cops have when they're off duty, uh -huh. just in case the bad guys find them. And uh, so he ran out there to see if he could help the situation. 
immediately then rolls up a couple of young white officers who have been told that there's a fight at the scene and there's maybe a black guy with a gun. And so the poor off-duty cop runs out there with his gun. The two white cops roll up, jump out of their car, scream at him to drop his gun. He doesn't drop fast enough. They shoot the poor guy dead. Wow. And uh, so it was a big tragedy. He was actually a son of a previous, I think it was a police chief in Providence, Rhode Island. It's a big tragedy. I heard the funeral on the radio. And the minister basically said that God had from eternity foreordained that this poor guy was going to get shot down like that just so that he could bring the community together. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. That's, he could bring the community together in other ways. I think God is fully within his rights to allow this kind of thing to happen, but it looks like the blame falls on us, not completely on him. So. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes people do bring up the problem of evil and say, oh, you're only an open theist because you can't stomach the idea of God being responsible for gratuitous evil. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, as we've already discussed, that's not the reason why you became an open theist, right? No, it's not. It was just because I had thought carefully about human free will and more responsibility and what those involve. And then I thought through all the attempts to show that this is compatible with a traditional understanding of divine foreknowledge and all those solutions seemed pretty clearly bad to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about evil, I think a lot of times people don't realize the incredibly high price that Calvinism exacts and not just Calvinism, but some of these other views as well. So, and this has come out in a very good written debate between the open theist William Hasker and the Calvinist uh, philosopher Paul Helm, both of whom are very good philosophers. But Hasker makes this point, which is according to a Calvinist view about divine providence, God always gets exactly what he wants. You cannot mm-hmm. say that God's will was violated. The most vilest, right. nastiest thing that you can imagine. And that's pretty nasty. Yeah, God, that's actually what God wanted to happen in that scenario. So think about, you know, serial killers or something uh, and all their horrible, dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Yeah, God picked all of those deeds out for his own mysterious purposes, as if that makes it better. And they talk about God's hidden will versus his revealed will. So he says he doesn't want certain things to happen, but actually he does want those things to happen in these concrete circumstances. So he says, I don't want anybody to kill anybody, but yeah, actually I want Dahmer to kill a couple dozen in horrific ways. Really? Yeah. The Bible seems to say God doesn't want to damn anyone. He wants everyone to be saved. Not according to Calvinism. I mean, he intentionally created them to damn them and this would somehow bring glory to him. So these, these hellions call them, they've been passed over for salvation and they just exist for a different reason. And uh, it tends to go along with uh, some heavy misanthropy, you know, hatred of human beings. Uh, if you really think that these people are just destined for hell, and they've always been that way, I mean, they're just like the rats and cockroaches of the world. I mean, you shouldn't be concerned about them, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the the way they save it is they say, well, you don't know who is who. Yeah, but you know what kind of God you just posited. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, what about the comeback where they say, well, you're just judging God and you're, you little maggot of a human are raising your fist and saying, God, you can't ordain this and ordain that. And who are you to question God and his choice of what he designed to happen and, and designed not to happen? Well, I'm not questioning God. I'm questioning your interpretation of the Bible and your theological scheme. And uh, it's no good to threaten me and malign me and say that I'm arrogant somehow when you're propounding a view that goes against God-given common sense that everybody has, you included. It's no good to poop on human reason in general when you rely on it in every other scenario in your life, right? You use human reason in financial planning. You use it in picking a doctor. You use it in... In everything, but okay, in theology, now it's all garbage and it's all totally useless. I mean, I thought we were made in God's image and likeness. And uh, he seems to have made us capable of responsibility in that we can know the difference between good and evil. We can know what our responsibilities are to do and to avoid. And we can build habits of self-control through our choices and... It's not that we can earn our salvation. I think Calvinism tends to be in some ways a reaction against the idea that you could just, um, of your own power, be perfect and please God and maybe even obligate God to save you, you know, earn your salvation. No, I mean, open theists don't think that. We, we think that God has to show grace. We think that we have to be forgiven. We think there are very sobering limits to what we're capable of choosing but we think that God, as, as he molds us into the image of Christ, is going to, in so doing, change the range of things that we're interested in doing, the range of things that we actually have a motive to do. So uh, may, maybe before you were saved, you were a habitual liar, and you love to just lie to gain attention for yourself or something, or to make a victim out of yourself, or to puff yourself up in other people's eyes, and then... Yeah, but once you've been a Christian for a while, you probably you just think, well, that's that's silly. Why would I want to do that? You just you may even uh-huh. lose the capacity to cha- to choose that, and that that's a good thing. You're still going to have other challenges, of course. All right, let me hit you with another text. This is Isaiah forty-one twenty-one to twenty-three. It says, "Set forth your case," says the Lord. "Bring your proofs," says the King of Jacob. "Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen." Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, to do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. So this this text here is drawing a strong line of distinction between the true God and these false gods, these idols of the nations, and the idols of the nations, not only can they not really do or talk, but like one of the main things they can't do is declare the things to come. Can you talk about how you would interpret this and also about the whole idea of prophecy from an open theist perspective? Yeah, the the unique God is the one who alone created the world and sustains it in existence, And he didn't just do it with no plan in mind. He actually had a plan, and he is in charge of it. He's superintending it. He's, uh, you could say, in control. But, see, control is not an all-or-nothing thing. 
he's in control enough where he can determine as much of the future as he wants to determine. And on that basis, he can have prophets predict the future and what they say will inevitably come out right if he wants to do it that way. Uh, so he's taunting the idols as not being provident and so not having this power of divine foreknowledge like he has. Now, prophecy in the Bible is really interesting in its complexity. And um, one thing that you have to see about it is that a lot of prophecy is not purely predictive. A lot of it is trying to get a reaction out of us. And it kind of sounds like a pure prediction, but it actually isn't. You have to be imaginative here and thinking about how this could possibly work. And it, it turns out that it, it could be more complicated than a lot of people uh, suppose it is. So say um, various Old Testament prophets predicted that God is going to send a Messiah. And yes, that actually happened. Notice that they didn't, as far as we know, contain any precise date. They had some circumstances, but they didn't settle all the circumstances. For all we right. know, there could have been multiple ways this could have been fulfilled. It could be that God had settled, you know, that in 3 BC or whatever, this time in this exact place would be conceived the Messiah. Or it could be that as of 700 BC or whatever, there were 10,000 ways this could turn out. When you're God and you're trying to uh, determine something that's going to be, you can either fix all of the circumstances or you can just fix general facts so that no matter how things turn out, the predicted event is going to occur. Take the second coming, for instance. Jesus talks about, I don't know the day and the hour, and he says the Father does. That kind of suggests that there is a settled day and hour that's already been settled a long time ago. But, you know, you can imagine that there wasn't. And so God is just, I'm going to send back my Messiah at some point. It might depend on what you guys do, how far the gospel spreads and things like this. Uh, but it's definitely going to happen. If you're thinking about going down uh, a bunch of forking paths, then no matter which path you go down, at some time or other, there's going to be a second coming. Or he could make it in a certain time range. It's going to happen between 2020 and 2040 or something like that. Or he could make it perfectly precise. It's going to be at this time, this place, at this moment. Um, these are all free to an omnipotent and omniscient being, according to open theism. Uh, but, okay, back to the point about prophecy not just being purely predictive. Sometimes a prophet will say something, and it looks like the point is to get you to respond so it actually doesn't happen. So Jonah, uh, in the book of that name, is sent to the pagan city of Nineveh, and he says that God's going to destroy the city in 40 days. Now, let me ask you, did that happen? No. Okay, is Jonah a false prophet? Nope. Okay, so it looks like that was a true prophecy. It was a correct, uh, genuinely inspired prophecy. And so what was the point? The point was, well, to elicit the response that actually happened, that the people should repent. And then when the people repented, God actually changed his mind. So it looks like the point of the prophecy was to say, hey, you're going to get it. But there was an unspoken, implied, unless you 
um, unless you repent. So say you say to yeah. your kids, I mean, if you're a person that spanks their kids, you say, uh, you're cruising for a bruising, mister. And that doesn't mean that, you know, exactly one hour from now, you're going to get a spanking. It means you better reconsider the course you're on. Because if you keep not listening to me, you keep disobeying, you're going to have this consequence that you don't like. So it's not actually just a prediction. It's a statement of current intent, the point of which is that really you don't want it to happen. Do you want the people to straighten out? Yeah, Jonah says in Jonah 4.2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah basically says, I know you, God. Mm. And that's why, that even though the prophecy was they're going to be destroyed, I know you. And I know that you relent from sending disaster. And there are just so many examples of this in Scripture. And, you know, this is one of my main issues with the Calvinist position, is that it forces me to take so many of these texts, especially the ones we see in the Old Testament here, and say, oh, it doesn't really mean what it says. You know, it's just speaking in that way because we're stupid humans and we can't handle the idea of God being timeless or having exhaustive foreknowledge. So, you know, he just talked to us and as if he was responding to us, mm-hmm. but we know, of course, he wasn't. Yep. And to me, like, that is just uh, an unacceptable hermeneutic. Yeah, sure. And this is these points are made at great length, for instance, in the book called God of the Possible by Gregory Boyd. He discusses this and uh, similar cases. To say that God relents means that he's open to our interactions with him and that we can change his mind off of a course that he is currently on. See, some things you intend to do, you just are going to do and no one's going to talk you out of it. And God certainly has that power, even if we rarely to never have it. He certainly does because he's all powerful. Uh, But then some things you intend to do, yeah, all things being equal, you intend to do them. But if certain things happen then you're going to do something else. And as you point out, Jonah understands this, that the point of the prophecy is not purely prediction, but it's rather to elicit repentance. And that's why he doesn't want to give it, because he doesn't like these people. God likes them more than he does. God's more merciful than him. Yeah, so that's an interesting case. Another case that the medieval philosophers discuss a lot, and this is a less clear-cut case. I'm not sure I have a, a single easy answer to this, is... When uh, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Now, what's the point? It could be that Jesus is just knows through God's Spirit. He has this miraculous knowledge that Peter is about to fail, that he's going to be tested. God's going to put him in these testing circumstances, and Peter is just going to collapse like a house of cards. And he's just telling him in advance, and that's just how it is. Or it could be a warning like when Jesus tells the disciples, pray so that you don't enter into temptation and that you don't fall away. Uh, either one's okay. It's just that if it's inevitable, then it's too late then for Peter to do anything because he was just going to give this cowardly denial of Christ. Uh, or it could have been a prediction designed to make Peter try to avoid that. But either way, 
Peter fails the test. So yeah, yeah, this could be like one of those scenarios where, uh, given the state of his mind and his history and so on, that God seeing him in these circumstances could say, "There's just no way he's going to to come through." And you know, even maybe it's not a hundred percent. Maybe it's ninety nine point nine nine percent. God can still see that probability, right? And uh, like for example, this one time, I got a uh, a variety pack of beer, and there was a cucumber flavored beer in there. Oh. And uh, yeah, I I, uh, I didn't see that one coming, but uh, you know, I tried it took a sip and uh it was predictably one of the most disgusting things i ever tasted and so if i were <laughs> if i were to encounter that sort of thing again in the future the probability of me choosing that of selecting that is so low that you know i think i could prophesy <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that 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 wouldn't happen and obviously that's a that's a trite example in comparison to peter's like distraught failure here, but, you know, God can see to the depth of who we are, and he knows, like, say, for example, a Peter, he knows everything Peter has ever done, everything he's ever thought, all the influences on his life, not to say that he exhaustively knows exactly what he's going to do, but there are certain conditions where you are just going to do what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't others where you do have free will mm-hmm. in a libertarian sense, right? Yeah, and Peter went out, it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was ashamed that he that he wimped out like this. And so he he thought it was something that he was responsible for, but it could have been the way he was responsible for was not that he was actually able to do something different in that exact circumstance, standing there in the courtyard, you know, when people say, hey, weren't you with him? Um, it could have been just that he failed to prepare himself properly. And so, therefore, failed the test. People think like this, Sean. They think, hey, we we predict each other's actions. So now that I know that story, if I offer you a cucumber beer, even if I say it's pretty good, you're probably going to turn it down, right? Yeah. And now I could loosely say, I know Finnegan's going to freely turn down the beer. Look, I don't really know that, right? I mean, I have some evidence that that's what you'll do. I might think that that's probable to a certain degree, but it's actually not something I know. And there's always a lot of wild cards in the game when it comes to our knowledge of one another. There's always motives I don't know about. There's always uh, outside influences I don't know about. So really predicting any human's action is a very uncertain game, although we rely on it constantly, you know, in our everyday interactions with one another, it works fine because we are very reliable and uh, we can know that person has a certain sort of character and habits that, you know, we, we depend on this for our lives. But um, yeah, God's knowledge goes infinitely beyond this. He, and he, he would easily be able to know if Peter was doomed to failure or if there was still a chance that he could get out of it. Let me read to you another text. This is from Genesis 6 and verse 5, where it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, John Calvin, in his commentary, writes as follows, 
the repentance which is here ascribed to God, which, of course, the old versions use the word repentance. It repented the Lord that he had made man. In the version I read, it said, the Lord regretted. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, the repentance which is here ascribed to God does not properly belong to him, but has reference to our understanding of him. For since we cannot comprehend him as he is, it is necessary that, for our sakes, he should, in a certain sense, transform himself. That repentance cannot take place in God easily appears from this single consideration is that nothing happens which is by him unexpected or unforeseen. The same reasoning and remark applies to what follows, that God was affected with grief. Certainly God is not sorrowful or sad, but remains forever like himself in his celestial and happy repose. Yet because it could not otherwise be known how great is God's hatred and detestation of sin, therefore the Spirit accommodates himself to our capacity. Wherefore, there is no need for us to involve ourselves in thorny and difficult questions when it is obvious to what end these words of repentance and grief are applied, namely to teach us that from the time when man was so greatly corrupted, God would not reckon him among his creatures." This figure, which represents God as transferring to himself what is peculiar to human nature, is called anthropopathia, uh, which I would translate as like human emotion, mm-hmm. <laughs> something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so, so what do you think about Calvin's take, and, and why do you not find it convincing that you know these things are just like accommodations to our fleshly weakness, and you know, of course, God's always happy; he's in a state of perfection. He can't experience grief. And this is just more or less a figure of speech, an anthropomorphism, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic example of your theory trumping the plain meaning of the text. It's only obvious to someone who accepts Catholic traditions about divine impassibility and divine timelessness and divine foreknowledge as traditionally defined. On the open theist view, God takes actual risks it's not that he's out of control or is going to somehow lose the game. Um, one interesting philosopher named Peter Geach suggested the analogy of a chess master. Say I sit down to play a chess master, like a real mm-hmm. chess master. Like, what's that Russian guy? Uh, oh, I don't know. So a, a number one ranked world champion, right? A guy who can beat computers. There doesn't have to be a set of facts about how this game is, is going to go. No matter what I do, he's going to whoop me. Any, any opening sequence I can come up with, he's going to cream. Consistent with that, you know, maybe he's going to lose a pawn somewhere. So he's, he's maybe risking that. So, yeah, in this uh, way of understanding divine providence, there is some degree of risk. And it is possible for God to regret letting things go, uh, letting things happen a certain way. And it's not because he's messed up. It's because he deliberately gave us free will and free choice and included the power of good and evil to an extent in that. And so it's also not that anything happens that's going to surprise him. Anything that happens, he always knew was a possibility, and he always knew if it was a a determinate probability, God would know that. And then the second we set our minds to doing that, he knows with certainty that it's about to happen. So... um, God, in a sense, is never surprised, although God sometimes, because he takes risks, he gets outcomes that he didn't want. And so then he can say, well, I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, Would have been better maybe if I didn't make humankind uh, as far as things have gone now. 
So pe- people are offended by the idea that God's in any sense taking risks. But look, this is just entailed by God making free creatures. Your right. the way that you superintend them is going to involve a certain degree of risk taking. You're not risking everything. You're not risking that you're that you're not going to exist or that you're not going to be provident or that you're not going to be perfect, but things are going to happen that you don't want to happen. Calvin's wedded to that view that everything that ever happens is one of the things that God wanted to happen from all eternity. I mean, that just seems like it's a terrible fatalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see the movie Adjustment Bureau with uh, Matt Damon and Emily Blunt? No, I didn't. Oh, gosh. You got you to gotta check it out because it's just a, a really interesting and fun take on this whole <laughs> this whole subject. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, it's, it's these two people that you know, fall in love and, or they're about to, and there are all these mysterious agents that keep adjusting circumstances so that they don't fall in love because of some other situation. And sort of like the background is that the Adjustment Bureau are more or less angels doing God's bidding that are making little tweaks in the human circumstances throughout the timeline and uh it's it's just it's just such a a fun little thought experiment on this whole subject that god is like directing things to be a certain way as opposed to another way but he's not forcing people he's Mm -hmm. just sort of like guiding them Mm -hmm. and you know of course the way it appears in this in this movie as is as a negative because they're trying to be you know they're fighting against love and god doesn't want it to happen but it's an interesting idea of like how god might be going about getting things done as opposed to just ordaining it from the beginning based on either ex- exhaustive predetermined foreknowledge or a middle knowledge you know sort of like simulator and then carrying out those initial conditions it, it, instead this god is in time and he is he's making moves all over the place. Right. Some of them with short-term consequences and some of them with like the chess master super long-term consequences, something that needs to happen, you know, maybe in the next month that will affect something that needs to happen in, you know, 100 years from now or whatever. Like think of for example the steam engine, right? Mm-hmm. They the Roman Empire had the steam engine. Mm-hmm. They just didn't. They just didn't think to use it for the sorts of things that the Industrial Revolution used it for. There was a guy in Alexandria, I think it was, that invented the steam engine, and he had it functioning. And it was just like a curiosity that wow. people would go look at, and they're like, "Oh, look, you know, this he he burns fire and it makes steam and it turns this wheel. Isn't that cool? You know." And, it, and nobody thought like, "Hey, let's uh, let's use this for farming," or for trains or, you know, but like if that had happened then, where would our world be now, mm-hmm. technologically speaking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there there, could be like a thousand, million, whatever different scenarios that we don't even personally imagine that God has sort of like made decisions along the way. Like, okay, in Genesis 6, he, he waited so long and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And then other times... Maybe he act, he acts a little sooner, or maybe he lets it go. You know, we don't really know. Yeah, for for whatever reason, I don't I don't really know why. Uh, maybe we just find it too exhausting to think about. But we tend to, I think, suppose that things that happened in the past were just inevitable beforehand. Like, oh, this was about to happen, right? But then, 
you know, when someone brings up a case like that, it's pretty easy to see that that really could have gone in some different directions if people had made different choices. Yeah. And his history would have been interestingly different. Um, people come at open theists and they say, your God's too small. You know, I think God can be fully in charge and can know everything. Actually, I think their God is too small because the way that their God exercises divine providence, it's like a guy writing a novel. And, you know, he writes a thousand page book. Every last letter is written. Every T is crossed. Every I is dotted. And then he just, whatever, he can put on the shelf and go to sleep. They think that's divine providence. It was all done prior to creation. I think God's involved in the world and he has his hand on things and he's responding to our responses to him. And so the actual mechanism of divine providence really is kind of mind boggling and it can work in a gazillion different ways that are hard to imagine. But on the other hand, some of it's easy to imagine, right? Suppose right. Uh, God wants me to help some person tomorrow. He wants me to, I don't know, help a little old lady across the street, like a boy scout. And, uh, but I don't plan to be at that street right now. What's he going to do? Is he going to take away my free will? Well, he could if he wants to, right? If it matters that much. God's under no obligation to give me free will. But um, he can let me have free will, and he can just make me think, hey, maybe I should go for a walk now and just give me a motive to do it. Or maybe I've already thought about going for a walk, and he just puts his finger on the scale a little bit and strengthens the motive. Hey, you know, yeah, it really would be good to go out and get some fresh air, and then I just happen to bump into this lady and help her. Maybe that's an answer to prayer, right? She's like, oh, Lord, how oh, am I going to yeah. get across this yeah, street? We haven't even really gotten into the whole prayer subject. Yeah. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. He can juggle all these concerns and, and all these outcomes and all these interests and, and do it perfectly and, and without any delay in time. And yeah. so the idea that he's wrapped it up uh, all beforehand, it's really kind of bizarre. Why not just imagine it? Why, why, let, it, why let it actually run? You know what's going to happen. It's boring. What you're describing is a God that is absolutely the chess master, supermaster of the universe, you know, working things out, which is way harder than just like recording a, an album and then playing it out, and then stuff yeah. is just the way you want it yeah. to be. Um, and so, you, you, what, what I hear you saying then is that the charge that is often leveled by Calvinists and uh, people from that uh, reform camp will say is, "Oh, you're diminishing God. You're." bringing God down to your human level, you're assaulting his sovereignty and diminishing his glory. And usually there's a lot of heat and emotion with these kinds of statements. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is actually, no, Mr. Calvinist, you are doing that yeah. by limiting him to this one way of doing things. And, you know, if, if, it really, if open theism really is the case, then it's actually more difficult and more impressive than a God who just figures it all out in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, they're... They think God's a control freak who takes all the control for himself and never gives anybody any shred of it. The God I'm describing invites us to cooperate in constructing how history goes. And so to an extent, he's leaving it open for us to be able to participate in that with him. People are so offended by this idea that God takes risks, but look, it, it makes sense. Um, and this is an example that William Hasker, the philosopher, has brought up. Sean, you're a parent, you have kids, mm -hmm. and it would break your heart if one of your kids just totally rejected you and wanted nothing to do with you. Of okay, course. so suppose I could offer you a pill, and this pill will guarantee that your kid loves you, 
you know, when you think about it carefully, would you, and, and there's no bad side effects and it's guaranteed to work and it, it only costs 10 cents. Okay. Would you give this pill to your kids? No, of course not. Why not? I mean, don't you, don't you want them to love you? It would diminish the value of the love to 10 cents. <laughs> right. So you're choosing risk because you yeah. value the freely chosen love that much. Um, but just, okay, by by agreeing to that risk, very, very tragic things can happen, right? Yes. Because yeah. even children with good parents sometimes go way off in left field and and break everybody's hearts. And, you know, God gets his heart broken according to open theism. At least that's a view that goes hand in hand with it uh, because things happen that he doesn't want to happen. Um, one other scriptural case that we think strongly favors our side is Second Kings 20, the case of King Hezekiah. So he becomes ill. God sends the prophet Isaiah in to tell him, you know, set your affairs in order because you're not going to recover. This is it. You're on your deathbed, basically. And so Hezekiah cries out to God and before and says, you know, hey, please, you know, I've served you. Can't I have some more life? He's weeping bitterly, and before Isaiah gets out of the palace, the word of God comes to him again and says, go back and tell him he's got some more time. And he gets more time. Now, I don't think this is God gaming people, fooling them, that this was his plan all along, and that he was just weirdly tricking Isaiah, deceiving him the first time he sent the prophet in. I think what the prophet said was true, which is basically that, God has determined that your time is about up. And at that time, that was God's intention. And then God just loved him and was open to his entreaty, and God responded and gave him some more. In doing that, he took some risks. You might think it didn't turn out that well. You might think it would have been better if he had just let Hezekiah die. Okay, but anyway, that's what God did in response to this humble request. Right, and this is not a single isolated incident. I mean, Moses uh, multiple times prayed, and uh, from a face reading of the text, God changed his mind about destroying the people. And, um, you know, th this is just, I would argue, a necessary component for authentic prayer. Um, if you believe that prayer is is effective, that you can actually ask God for something, that you can argue with God like Abraham did with Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, that this very Jewish flavor of, of interacting with God as opposed to the, the Greek concept of the uh, Platonic, you know, eternal realm where nothing ever changes, the immutable, impassable, yep. and Aristotle's unmoved mover. The timeless, unblinking yeah. stare, as one author puts it. <laughs> the timeless, unblinking stare. You know, that's a very different view of prayer, and now prayer is really just about you finding a way to express yourself and but it it can't really actually do anything right yeah yeah so when we deliberate you know should i do this or that you're presupposing that both options are now open otherwise you wouldn't be deliberating about that right i can't deliberate about whether 2 plus 2 is 4 or about whether the sun comes up tomorrow. I don't have any control over these things, but if I deliberate, should I have coffee tomorrow morning or not, when I'm doing that, it looks like I'm presupposing and correctly presupposing that both those options are available to me, available to me as things stand now. 
when we pray, we are hoping to affect God's deliberation. Now, it doesn't always work because he's got a lot going on. He's in charge of the world, and there may be some purposes he has or something he's already decided, which makes it such that he is not going to answer my stupid prayer. Okay, but we're hoping that he has still left this open. Say you're praying, I don't know, you're trying to find a, a wife, okay? Uh, maybe God just wants you to be single forever. For all you know, you can't rule that out. But you pray, God, if it's your will, please help me to meet a nice Christian lady who I can marry. And so you're hoping that God hasn't fully settled his plan and that he will be influenced by me to hasten that day. That's what prayer is. Now, the Calvinists can always come up with a story about how basically there's a network of causes and effects in a deterministic world, and the prayers are part of those causes and effects. And so there are going to be effects of prayers, but honestly, that's not how we think about it. We're hoping that God hasn't fully settled what he's going to do, and he's going to listen to me, which does that take uh, some chutzpah? Does that... How dare you think you can affect God's plans? Well, that's the Bible, man. Like you said, you don't talk to God like some kind of smart aleck that can just say whatever they want or make demands or anything like that. But as a child of God, and in our case, someone who's acceptable to God in Christ, we can ask. And in fact, God, our Heavenly Father, is pleased when we ask. Asking is an act of faith. We're presupposing that God will listen to us, that he'll let himself be influenced to some extent by us. Although, of course, he's not always going to answer our prayers. That would be stupid. That would make him not, yeah, he's not, our not wise, not omniscient. Yeah, He's got his own agenda. Yeah. You know, there's that uh, text in James says something like, you have not because you ask not. You know, that's right. pretty close to a counterfactual <laughs> statement in yeah, Scripture. Yeah, no, that, look, that can't literally be true if it's all been decided in an all-encompassing divine plan. He's, he's saying, hey, you guys haven't got certain things, and that's because you just you didn't have enough faith to ask. You just chose not to ask. You just, oh, I guess I guess it's just going to be bad, you know, and slump down in <laughs> Your... resignation. <laughs> yeah, well, I think of Jesus, too, where he says, uh, he tells a couple of these parables about uh, the friend who comes at midnight and asks for some loaves, and uh, the person he's at, his neighbor, he's asking, he's like, leave me alone, I'm in bed, you know? And he's like, he won't, I tell you, he won't give up uh, asking. And then eventually the guy gets up and he gives him what he wants. And, and this is Jesus teaching us on how to be basically annoying to mm -hmm. God in prayer. Or the, the widow who has been wronged keeps going to the unjust judge, doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people, mm -hmm. and she just wears him down. And eventually, he just gives, all right, whatever you want, all right, just don't come back tomorrow. And I, I don't think these parables are supposed to express God's character, but in, in, in fact, our doggedness in prayer. Yeah. And, and yeah, sometimes the answer is no. Many times the answer is no, right? Uh, Jesus got a no in Gethsemane. Paul got a no with a thorn in the flesh. You mm -hmm. know, no is, no is, is fine, but... What Jesus is teaching us is that he wants us to persist and persist and persist and persist and yeah. prayer for certain things. Yeah. Um, and that just totally fits with this open theistic view, don't you think? Yes, and I mean, and you again, for the rival views, you have to understand that it's just part of the theory of divine providence that God is not still open in his deliberations regarding anything at all. 
And so this type of prayer where you're hope, you know, you're asking me because you think you can still have some influence on what I'm going to do, this kind of asking that presupposes that God is still open to our influence is just wrong. It's wrong-headed according to these theories of divine providence where it was all decided at the beginning or in eternity. All right. Well, that's uh, that's good for today. Thanks so much, uh, Dale. Were there any more references you'd like to share with people or follow up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the place that you should start if you want to explore these options as a Bible-believing Christian, the place to start is a book called The Openness of God, a biblical challenge to the traditional understanding of God. It's got five authors, Pinnock, Rice, Sanders, Hasker, and Basinger. And they talk about the the philosophical background of the traditional views, history of theology and how philosophy plays into that, systematic theology, uh, biblical perspective and practical implications. Um, if you want to pursue more kind of the biblical angle, God of the Possible, a biblical introduction to the open view of God by Gregory Boyd uh, is a really interesting and helpful book. If you want to explore the different attempts to show how divine foreknowledge and freedom can both be had, that they're actually compatible after all, and compare that to an open theist view, I would say the place to look is William Hasker's book called God, Time, and Knowledge. And I think Hasker was like me in that he he wanted to stick with tradition as much as possible. He didn't want to jump over to process theism, but it's just that when you work through the alternatives, they seem like they're all bad alternatives. They don't really fit with what we all instinctively believe about human freedom and free choice. So those are my, those are my book recommendations. All right. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that's it for this interview. I put a number of recommended books in the show notes for this episode, which you can get in your device, or by going to restitutio.org and finding episode 304, Foreknowledge and Free Will Part 2. In particular, the, uh, the, the book Tuggy recommended the most would be probably The Openness of God, A Biblical Challenge to the Traditional Understanding of God, and that's the one that's written by five authors, by Clark Pinnock, Richard Rice, John Sanders, William Hasker, David Bassinger, and uh, then I've got listed a number of the other books in the show notes for this episode. Additionally, I wanted to point out that if you want to find out more about Dale Tuggy, you can certainly listen to the previous episode, episode 303, Foreknowledge and Free Will Part 1, Dale Tuggy Introducing Open Theism, and on that episode in the show notes, I put in a whole bunch of links where Dr. Tuggy addresses this issue and has other people presenting, other philosophers presenting on this uh, whole question of God and time, foreknowledge and free will and so on. So take a look at that if you haven't already. You can get in touch with Dale Tuggy and find out more about his work at trinities.org. And you can listen to previous Rest Studio podcasts where Tuggy talks about his story of faith just by searching for his name in the podcast feed. Uh, lastly, before I get to the to your comments, I wanted to mention uh, this movie one last time. It is PG-13, so uh, you might want to watch out for any young kids that will be listening. But it's called The Adjustment Bureau, and it stars Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. I uh, put a link to the IMDb uh, page on the show notes, and uh, would just be curious to think. This is this would be my one question to you, who are film types. 
does this film accurately represent open theism, Arminianism, or Calvinism? And see what, see what you, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. All right, on to your comments. I uh, got a number of remarks and comments last week. First up is Brian Allen, who writes, This was a fascinating discussion. I like a more nuanced view that Judaism allows for, but much of this view, in my limited understanding of the topic, works within an open theism concept. I'm curious why whatever Jewish view Dale learned was unsatisfying and led him to the conclusion that open theism was the only option. With the exception of the heretical Rabbi Chazdai Kreskas, born in Barcelona around 1340, who seems to have denied free will, most Jewish thinkers throughout history have embraced free will to the point where Rambam can state the free will is the foundation upon which the entire Torah rests. Doubt and free will is an effect of a belittling of human greatness, as supporters of this thought perceive humans as nothing more than sophisticated animals, enslaved to their instincts and biases, unable to triumph over their innate desires, leaving no room for free will. In Jewish thought, humans are understood to be more than blood, bones, and sinews that make up physical bodies. Free will is the crown of human grandeur. Free will, however, must be defined. Free will in Jewish thought is not the ability to choose matzo ball soup or a tomato soup for lunch. Free will is defined as the ability to choose between right and wrong, not the ability to choose X or Y. We're not always able to choose between the inconsequential X or Y. We are guaranteed the choice between good and evil. As for God knowing the future, God has a plan, but as far as the decisions people make, the right or wrong moral choices, he is unaware. Consider Gemara... Nida 16b, quote, that angel that is appointed over, over conception is called night, and that angel takes the drop of semen from which a person will be formed and presents it before the Holy One, blessed be he, and says before him, Master of the universe, what will be of this drop? Will the person fashioned from it be mighty or weak? Will he be clever or stupid? Will he be wealthy or poor? The Gemara notes, but this angel does not say, will he be wicked or righteous? This is in accordance with the statement of Rabbi Hanina, as Rabbi Hanina said, everything is in the hand of heaven except for fear of heaven. People have free will to serve God or not, as it is stated. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you other than to fear the Lord your God? Deuteronomy 10.12. The fact that God asks of the Jewish people to fear him indicates that it is a person's choice to do so, end quote. According to this realm of thought, Brian Allen continues, God does not know whether people will be righteous or wicked, and it's up to us to choose which lifestyle we want to live. Nevertheless, God sets the moral standards which define a righteous or wicked lifestyle. I'm looking forward to the remainder of the episodes in this series. Well, Brian, this is certainly interesting uh, to bring up the Jewish perspective, this sort of later rabbinic interpretation on this, that God knows everything about someone's circumstances in life, but not about their moral choices. I'd be curious to to see any kind of biblical evidence for that. The scripture you cited there, Deuteronomy 10.12, certainly is good evidence that God expects people to fear him, which undoubtedly is a moral request or commandment. Um, however, I don't see anywhere in what you wrote here clear scripture that says, that that God knows everything else other than 
moral choices. And uh, being a Christian, I do not hold to the authority of Jewish tradition. So I, I would need a scripture to back that up. But thanks for sharing that. I don't have time to read out all the comments that came in, but uh, I did want to respond a little to Anna Brown. She, she writes, Sean, I'm looking forward to hearing more on why this topic matters to my life. All right, let me just pause this comment right there. I am not committed to only putting out episodes that have practical application. There are a great, great many Christian radio shows, podcasts, and YouTube channels and ministries that do just focus on Christian living. And uh, I think Christian living is incredibly important. I self-identify as an Anabaptist, and for those of you who don't know an Anabaptist, for an Anabaptist, the mark of discipleship is literally following the words of Jesus, uh, as opposed to just believing in Jesus, which I also, of course, believe in Jesus. But having said that, I don't want to limit myself to just practical concerns. I'm a curious person. I want to know how things work. I have uh, an engineering background, in fact, in my education, and I like to think about how things are put together. So when it, when it comes to this doctrine, as, uh, as Anna will point out in just a minute, there are implications for other doctrines. There are implications for how we think about God and how we relate to God and for how we think about our own salvation, as, we're, as we'll definitely see going through these subsequent episodes, especially once we get to Calvinism. But even though there are practical implications, I just want to make it clear, I'm not restricting myself to only producing episodes that deal with purely practical matters. I, I love God, and I want to know everything I can know about God, whether it affects how I live or not. And a great many of those things do affect how I live, but not everything. Anyhow, continuing with her comment, she writes, at this point, I'm seeing a related topic and a question. Firstly, I'm already seeing this as related to once saved, always saved theology. Because as two people who recently parted ways with that doctrine, my husband and I are in the midst of discussing that issue with our friends. Spoiler alert, our friends and fellow ministers are primarily troubled on this issue by some sort of tension they see between Romans slash Ephesians and other books of the New Testament. I think this is the brunt of it. If God foreknew my salvation before the foundation of the world, then how could I undo God's foreknowledge? I, uh, I think I see the tension that my friends are discussing, but I'm pretty strongly of the opinion that if two sections of the Bible seem to contradict each other, I don't get to pick a winner. They have to fit or I have to understand them better. My logic may be like bringing a mallet to a heart surgery, ouch, but so far it's helping me force myself to confront and meditate on verses that are outside my theology, so I like it. And let me pause it, your comment there, Anna. I just wanted to respond a couple of things. First of all, there is an interesting book out uh, that handles Ephesians 1 and, as I recall, Romans 9 to some degree as well, and it's called Elect in the Son by Robert Shank. And in that book, which is an incredibly dry read, by the way, uh, he talks about the idea of corporate election. And so those of us who are not Calvinists, this would be all open theists and Arminians, do not see Ephesians 1 as God predestining individuals to salvation, but predestinating the church to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so those are two very different things, uh, and uh, one would take away your free will decision 
to choose to believe, and the other one would say would make it such that if you do choose to believe, this is how you have to be in order to be, to be part of this predestined corporate reality. And we are going to talk more about this subject in future episodes, and we're going to cover both sides of it. So you're, you're going to get a full-orbed perspective on Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, and uh, also the end of Romans 8, uh, which is a key passage as well. However, as far as once saved, always saved goes, uh, I think Ephesians is is pretty clear that... Uh, you can't go on sinning and inherit the kingdom of God. I believe that was chapter 5 talks about that. And uh, Romans is very strong on that as well. Romans 11 talks about this olive tree of faith that uh, if you cease to have faith, then you will be broken off from that olive tree. There are clear scriptures inside the church epistles and outside the church epistles that discuss this idea of conditional salvation, that salvation is conditioned on continuance in faith as opposed to once believing something. And I have some previous podcast episodes that address this subject, namely Theology Part 21, Conditional Salvation, where I lay out a positive case for the need for perseverance, that you're not just automatically once saved, always saved. And the Theology Podcast 22, which covers some commonly raised proof texts that seem to indicate that once you're saved, you can never lose your salvation. And also, Dan Gallagher put out in Interview 33 his take on the question, can you lose your salvation? This is probably in the top 10 of all podcasts out of over 300 of all time on Restitutio, uh, top 10 downloads. Dan Gallagher, Interview 33, can you lose your salvation? Here's somebody that changed his view on this subject and subsequently suffered uh, a great deal for his changing that point of view and even ended up having to change jobs because of it. So I I commend those three episodes to you, uh, Anna, and anyone else who's curious on that particular issue. But you're right, these things are interconnected. Look, if God predestines you to be saved, there's not a lot you can do to become unsaved, right? So uh, I think you do make a good point there. She continues, my question is this, are there things that it behooves us not to know? I'm thinking specifically of Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Perhaps the rest of this series will offer me another way to resolve Ephesians 1 tension I mentioned above. Further, I I'm hopeful that I'll get a real feel for any implications of this topic beyond. It sure is interesting. On that uh, scripture, Deuteronomy 29, 29, which will, in fact, come up in this series, um, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, I have a verse in response to you. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So just because God has concealed something, that doesn't mean that we can't search it out. Uh, Indeed, we are the kings and queens of the age to come in training today, aren't we? Revelation 5.9 talks about how Jesus died and with his blood he purchased people to be a kingdom of priests and and that we will reign upon the earth, people from every tribe, nation, and language. So I think this is one of these areas where I wouldn't break fellowship with anybody over it, but at the same time, it's fascinating to talk about. And if people are going to be talking about the latest movie, the latest sports team, the latest technological device, or pop culture celebrity faux pas, 
I think talking about God is is better than those things. So, and I believe that he he likes for us to focus on him and to think about him, and it sure does make for a better day. So, thanks for writing in, Brian Allen. Andrew Alexander wrote in. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to read his out. Anna Brown. And uh, those of, of you who have interacted on Facebook, please come online if you have comments on today's post, uh, episode 304, and add your voice to the mix. We'll see you next week. Dr. Leighton Flowers is going to lay out the case for the Arminian point of view of exhaustive free knowledge and libertarian free will. So that's going to be awesome. I'll catch you then. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.